morning. It's wonderful to be with you. Um, this is a fun treat. Uh, we are technically pausing our series on Abraham, but I don't really want to do that. So uh, we're going to make this an Abraham sermon in a sense by beginning our time of scripture, looking at Hebrews chapter 11. Our, our main text will be Colossians 3, which is printed in your bulletin. But if you'll indulge me, I'd like to read first uh, from Hebrews 11, where the author of the Hebrews speaks of Abraham on themes very related to what we are going to discuss today. So we'll read Hebrews 11, 8 through 16, and then we'll turn back to Colossians chapter 3. This is God's word. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of the land from which they had gone out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And then turning back to Colossians chapter 3, we'll read verses 1 through 4. They're in your bulletin. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. This is God's word. It is absolutely true and it is given to us in love. Let's pray. God, our Father, we thank you that you have given us your word. Lord, we could not know you if you did not tell, yourself, tell us about you. And God, now we pray that as you have revealed yourself to us, you would aid us in attending to that word. May I speak clearly and truthfully and may we all see and treasure on these pages, Jesus Christ, our Savior, that we might rest in him alone for our salvation. This we ask in his name. Amen. My day job is as the RUF campus minister at Northwestern, and that means that every year I get to meet a lot of new people. It's a constant churn of folks coming in and leaving, and when you meet new people, you have to make small talk, and obviously one of the easiest and most important questions is, where are you from? Where are you from? And actually, I can find out a lot about people from knowing where they are from. It tells me about what they value. It tells me about whether or not they're going to be prepared for the cold weather that is to come in about three or four months from their arrival. Where are you from? I wonder what Abraham would have said if he'd been asked, where are you from, Abraham? He would have said, well, it's complicated. I was born in Ur of the Chaldeans, and I'm here now, living in tents, but God has promised me a land, 
that's in the future and to make me a great nation. I'm seeking a homeland, a better country, a heavenly one, as the author of the Hebrews tells us. Abraham was not from where he was. He was from something future, and that affected the way he lived. And in Colossians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is calling us to that very thing, to recognize where we're from and to live in light of our homeland even now, as we are not yet home. We're going to unpack this text today, Colossians 3, in two parts. First, looking at what God calls us to. What is he telling us to do? And second, the reasons he gives and the power he gives for us to do that. This is always the way Paul works. Paul says, do this, but he always gives us a because, or because of this, do this. So those are our two, those are going to be kind of how we unpack this text this morning. First, we're going to look at the hidden kingdom and the call to live in light of it. And second, our hidden life. So the hidden kingdom and our hidden life. First, the hidden kingdom. If you look at Colossians 3 again, I hope you'll keep your bulletin or Bible open. Look at the two, the two commands, the two imperatives that Paul gives us in this text. Verse 1, seek the things that are above. This is, this is what is also translated elsewhere, set your hearts on the things that are above, as Diana mentioned. Seek the things that are above, verse 1. And then verse 2, set your minds on the things that are above. Seek and set your mind. Now, set your mind sounds kind of official, like you need to go into your room and sit down and set your mind on the things that are above. But the word here just means think. So think about the things that are above and seek the things that are above. And and in these two ideas, we have a pretty comprehensive picture about what our life's about. What are you thinking about and what are you seeking? And if you answer those two questions, I've got a pretty good idea of what matters to you. What matters to me? It's a good diagnostic question to ask ourselves. What are you thinking about in the last five minutes other than maybe paying attention to what I've been saying, right? That'll give you a picture of what is important, what we think about and what we seek. And so Paul says, think about the things that are above and seek the things that are above. Orient yourself around these things, your life, your desires, your thoughts. Okay, so what, what are those things? What are the things that are above? Do we need to leave, Winnetka, leave our jobs, go to a monastery somewhere in the desert? Do we need to go and meditate our way to some higher plane to get out of this world? Is that what you mean, Paul? Maybe some substances could help us get there. Is that what it means to seek the things that are above? And Paul says, no. No, that's, I don't think that's what he is saying. And I want to give you my conclusion of what he's saying, and then I'll defend it from the text. The conclusion I want to offer is this, that when Paul says, seek the things that are above and set your mind on the things that are above, it's like he's saying, seek and set your mind on American things. So I had a, tra- a chance to travel to India uh, for a few weeks one time, and was, most of that time was spent uh, in, a, in a rural setting, and we were a very authentic Indian cuisine, um, which was tasty, but not, you know, not my thing normally. And so when we finally went to a big city at the end of that time, after two weeks of, of that experience, my heart and my mind were set on American things. I was desperate for McDonald's, and I found it. And I ate McDonald's in Calcutta, India, and it was one of the most delicious meals I've ever had in my life. Right? Not because I like McDonald's. I don't ever eat McDonald's. But, but there, 
right? My mind and heart were set on American things. And that's a picture, I think, of what Paul is saying here with relation to heavenly things. Okay, Chris, so, so show me that. I want to show you that. Look at Colossians 3 again. Um, what's the one thing that Paul tells us about above? What's the one thing that characterizes it? Look at verse 1. Seek the things that are above. What's unique about that? It's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is significant. The thing that matters about that which is above is that that's where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is an allusion to Psalm 110, where David says, Yahweh says to my Lord, which is looking forward to Christ, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. And Paul interprets this as fulfilled in Jesus in Ephesians 1, where he says that God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. The most significant thing about above is that it's where Christ is seated in authority, where Christ reigns as king. This idea of kingdom is all over Colossians. If we had looked at, if we'd been reading the whole letter together, we would have started in Colossians 1, verse 13, with this God has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. This is how Paul understands our salvation. We have had our kingdom allegiance transferred. And then the last piece of evidence, if you want it, this is kind of cool, I think. In, in Philippians 3, which is the only other place that Paul talks about setting your mind on something, he says this, speaking of, of those outside the faith, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But, he says, and what comes next but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. So to set your mind on the things that are above, to seek the things that are above, is to live in light of the kingdom and kingship of Jesus Christ, who reigns. Our understanding of citizenship and kingdom allegiance affects the way we live. This is intuitive even to us, right? We see this in immigrant communities in our own country, Right? My own, my own ancestors came to America, a lot of them from Germany, around the turn of the last century. And they settled in Central Texas. If you want some good German food, go to Central Texas. That's why we have great barbecue. And we were going through my grandmother's things after she passed away, and we found a ring. And the ring had an iron cross on it. And we thought, oh, this is interesting. Um, was, was one of our ancestors a, a the Iron Cross is the, ger the German uh, symbol, in world, especially in World War I. So we looked it up, and what is, this, what is this thing that we found? And it's actually something that is rather common. At the, at, as World War I broke out, and before the Americans got in, I'm assuming, I think that's right, there was a, definitely a period there, the Germans in America would take their wedding rings and send them to Germany to support the war effort. And in, ex in, in response, the Germans would send back these ten rings with, a, with, a, with an iron cross on them, which they would wear in place of their wedding band. Because for my grandfather or grandmother, whoever that was, in America, in 19-whatever, his heart was set on Germany. He was seeking German things. Even though he was here, he was living in, in light of this other kingdom that was his home. 
And that's a picture, I think, of what Paul is calling us to hear. What does it look like for us to live as citizens of the kingdom of Christ? What it looks like for us to submit to Christ's rule and to walk in his way? As Diana mentioned, if you keep reading in Colossians 3, you come to Colossians 3, 12 through 17. After calling the Colossians to put away sin, put it to death, Paul says, put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, forgiving one another. And then at the end he says, above all these things, put on love. This is what it looks like to orient our lives in light of a kingdom that is not here yet. It's to live under the rule of Christ, to live in the pattern of his way. And it's a beautiful thing. That's what Paul's calling us to. But it's hard. It's hard to live as citizens of a hidden kingdom for several reasons. One, because it's hidden. We don't see it. Christ is not president right now. Hasn't been, right? Our affections, our desires, our thoughts are, are honestly more formed by the marketers in New York and the entertainment folks in L.A. than by anything else, right? So it's hard to live in light of this other realm. Moreover, our particular kingdom affiliation as Americans makes us allergic to submitting to anybody, anytime, anywhere, so the idea that we would live in light of anything is, is something foreign to us. And on top of all that, we're simply selfish sinners who want to do our own thing. And so to walk in the pattern of Christ in this way that Paul calls us to is to do something that does not come easily. Happily, Paul doesn't just tell us what to do. He gives us reason and power for doing it. This is the way Paul always acts and the way he writes. This is the way the gospel works in our hearts. If then you have been raised with Christ, do this. Do this for you have died, Paul says in this text. And this is the pattern of Romans. It's the pattern of Ephesians. Do this because of this. And so our second point is our hidden life. And here we see both the purpose and the power to actually live in light of the kingdom of Christ. Look back at Colossians 3 with me. We've seen what Paul calls us to, the imperatives, right? Now look at what he says are true about us. Three things he says are true about us. Verse one, you have been raised. Verse three, you have died. Verse four, you will appear. You've been raised, you have died, you will appear. He's saying that's about you. That's true about you. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Anybody else had that? Three things said of them. We don't do this at Grace, but at many churches during, during the Lord's Supper, the congregation will recite the mystery of faith. What is the mystery of faith? And you would reply, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. This is the, this is the structure of the Apostles' Creed. It's elemental to our faith that these three things are true of Jesus, that he died, that he rose, and that he is coming again. And here in Colossians chapter 3, Paul does something quite surprising in applying all of those realities to you. You have died. You have risen. You will come again. And in this, we see a picture of what theologians call our union with Christ. It's complicated. It's also simple. 
Jesus in the gospel grabs you and straps you to his back and says, you're coming with me. And in his death, we die. And in his resurrection, we rise. And in his return, we will have glory because he has done these things on our behalf. Romans 6 tells us if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will surely also be united with him in a resurrection like his. We are united to Christ. And so Paul can say crazy things like you have died and you have risen and you will come again. So what does this mean for our life now? It's, well, it's confusing. It's kind of like Abraham's answer to where are you from? You say, well, it's complicated. Because we're living now, right? You, have, you haven't died yet. You're here and now. And yet in some other sense, you have. Some other sense, your reality is ahead of you and above you with Jesus. And Paul sums this up with his phrase in verse 3, your life is hidden with Christ and God. We're living now, but our true life is above and in front, hidden from view. Our life is hidden. And this reality is, is profound and rich for us as Christians. Your life is hidden with Christ. I wonder what we mean when we talk about our life, right? Because it's not simply living and breathing and existing, right? When you talk about your life, you're talking about something with substance, right? You're talking about something that can be used well or wasted, something that's vulnerable to other forces, something that could be a success or a failure. It's like we've got this block of clay and we're doing our best with our life. To quote Eminem or Hamilton, right? You get one shot, and you're gonna do your best, right? Don't throw it away. That's the way we feel about our lives. We can hear this in the voice of teenagers. Perhaps you've heard or said as a teenager yourself something along the lines of, My life is ruined. My life is ruined. And, and if you're a parent, uh, it's, it's particularly painful, directed at you. You have ruined my life, right? Maybe you've heard that. Maybe you've said it. I didn't get into the college that I wanted to get into. My life is ruined. I didn't get that grade on that test that I wanted. My life is ruined. That boy I like doesn't like me back. My life is ruined. I don't have friends. I'm not part of the cool crowd. My life is ruined. And in the midst of that, right, if you're a parent or a friend, what do you say to that young person? One thing you might say is, sweetheart, there is so much more to your life than this thing, right? Your life is not ruined by this thing. There is so much more. And in a sense, that's what Paul's saying to us in this text. Your life is hidden with Christ and God, to bring in another text that I love, 1 John 3, 2, which is saying something very similar. John says, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Your life is hidden with Christ, and what you will be has not yet appeared. But when Christ appears, back to Colossians, you will appear with him in glory. I think we need to pause here this morning and hear that, because Maybe you're a teenager in this room thinking your life is ruined, but maybe you're a grown-up and you think your life is ruined too. Some of us come in this room very much 
feeling that way. Our life has been ruined. Our relationship has been broken. We have lost a loved one. My life is ruined. I've received a bad diagnosis, which means my life will be shorter or less pleasant than otherwise. My life is ruined. I've lost a job. I've lost money. I've lost respect. My life is ruined. I've sinned grievously against someone, and even if they forgive me, it will never again be the same. My life is ruined. That sculpture I was trying to build, that shot I had, it's crushed on the floor. My life is ruined. And if that's you this morning, hear this word from God. Your life is hidden with Christ. What you will be has not yet appeared. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. Your life is not ruined. It is with Christ. Some of us come in this room in a very different spot. Or we strut into our couch at home, Right? We come in thinking, you know what? I'm kind of making it. I'm kind of doing it, right? I think I'm going to do this. My life's pretty good. It's kind of glorious. And if that's you this morning, you need to hear this as well. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. What you will be has not yet appeared. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. That's the glory you are looking for and sometimes trick yourself into thinking you have. And then for most of us, and I would identify in this category, we're bouncing between those two things, right? Just trying to keep it all together. One day thinking our life is ruined, one day thinking we might just make it, and living in that anxious space in between, wondering what is going to happen. And as you're grinding and hustling to try to make it all work and hold it all together, you need to hear your life is hidden with Christ and God. What you will be has not yet appeared. When he appears, you will appear with him in glory. This is a deep encouragement to me. I hope it is to you. But beyond this encouragement, in this reality is the power to do that which Paul called us to in the first place. Because our hidden life is intimately connected with our ability to live in light of Christ's hidden kingdom. Part of that's very logical, and this is Paul talks this way. You're a citizen of heaven, so act like it. Right? Pretty simple. Be who you are. But even more than that, our hidden life in Christ actually empowers us to live lives in this world in submission to his hidden kingdom. Look again at Colossians chapter 3. If you have your Bible, skip down to verses 12 and 17. What does he tell us to do? What does it look like? Remember, put on, as God's chosen ones, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if anyone has a complaint, forgiving one another. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love. I've lived enough time, I'm not that wise, but I've lived enough to know that the way to get ahead in this world, 
the way to make the most of your one shot, the way to make the most of your little sculpture block of clay that you have is not usually to be compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. Usually the way to do that is quite the opposite. It is not to lay down your life like Jesus in love for someone else. It's to go and take what is yours, to defend your rights, to seek your own good. And so the only way that we can follow Christ, that we can live in the pattern of his kingdom, in the pattern of his way, is if we believe that our life is hidden with him. If we say no to the lie that this is your one shot, that this is your one life, that if it breaks, you're broken. Only if we believe that reality about our life being hidden with Christ can we go out then and live like Jesus in this world. What's really cool is that Jesus did this himself. So Jesus comes to this world, and how does it end up for him? He's homeless, and then he dies. He's crucified. And, and the author of the Hebrews in chapter 12, just after what we read, says this. He encourages us to look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus Christ came to this world knowing that his joy was set before him that his joy was hidden with God, that his exaltation was in the future, and so he laid down his life now. And if we know that, we know that our union with Christ makes those same things true about us. We can go out into this world laying down our life, knocking over our own block of clay, and ruining our life for the sake of our neighbor. Only if that is true can we do those things, and if we do, it is beautiful. I'm going to close by reminding ourselves of that strange reality that Paul speaks to us about in Christ. You have died. You have risen. You will come again. And if Paul was here, we might initially say, Paul, friend, that's not actually us, right? Those words, those verbs are really true, but they're about Jesus, right? He's done those things, not me. And that really then is the point. He'd say, yeah, you got it. All of these things that are said to be true of you and me, we have not done. Christ has done them on our behalf. And that's really good news. Because our life which is hidden, the joy that is set before us, is secured by the work of another. Our life is so tied up in him that we can say with verse 4, Christ is our life. And so in both our hope and our living, it's all Jesus. It's all Jesus. Look to him and know that your life is hidden and secure. And then look to him and follow him in his way, laying down what you have now for the sake of your neighbor and the glory of God. This is good news, friends. Your life is hidden with Christ. What you will be has not yet appeared. When Christ appears, you will appear with him in glory. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that this isn't all there is. 
even as we are frustrated by the realities of our life in this world, even as we are trying to keep it all together, even as we grieve that which is lost, we rejoice that our life is hidden in Christ with you. Oh God, please help us to know and trust in this reality and then empower us to go out and live as citizens of that hidden kingdom. We ask this all in the name of our Savior Jesus. Amen.